ahead and get started. <clears throat> Afternoon. We are in Proverbs chapter 11. Also, just um, for your information, we will start doing communion again, not next week, but the first Sunday of April. First Sunday of April, we'll start back up and then we'll resume our normal practice, okay? Proverbs chapter 11, and we went through the first 16 verses, and we're going to pick up in verse 17 today. So we'll pick up in verse 17, we'll read through the end of the chapter, and then we'll have our Bible study there. Proverbs 11, verse 17 says, The merciful man does himself good, but the cruel man does himself harm. The wicked earn deceptive wages, but he who sows righteousness gets a true reward. He who is steadfast in righteousness will attain to life, and he who pursues evil will bring about his own death. The perverse in heart are an abomination to the Lord, but the blameless in their walk are his delight. Assuredly, the evil man will not go unpunished, but the descendants of the righteous will be delivered. As a ring of gold in a swine's snout, so is a beautiful woman who lacks discretion. The desire of the righteous is only good, but the expectation of the wicked is wrath. There is one who scatters and yet increases all the more. And there is one who withholds what is justly due, and yet it results only in want. The generous man will be prosperous, and he who waters will himself be watered. He who withholds grain, the people will curse him, but blessing will be on the head of him who sells it. He who diligently seeks good seeks favor, but he who seeks evil, evil will come to him. He who trusts in his riches will fall. But the righteous will flourish like the green leaf. He who troubles his own house will inherit wind, and the foolish will be servant to the wise-hearted. The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and he who is wise wins souls. If the righteous will be rewarded in the earth, how much more the wicked and the sinner? Shall we pray? <clears throat> Heavenly Father, as we, Lord, read your word and, Lord, think and contemplate concerning its Content, Lord, we ask today that you would guide us in our thoughts, Lord, in our speech. Lord, help us to see the distinction, Lord, that is made between the righteous and the wicked. Lord, that there is a reward, Lord, for both, that each one will be given according to what he is due. Lord, we pray that we would manifest that we are your children and that we do have true faith by living a life of godliness. Lord, that we would hate evil and that we would do what is good. And Lord, keep us from deluding ourselves into thinking that we can live a life of perversity and of sin and yet entertain the hope of eternal life. So Father, we pray that we would have uh, true confidence, Lord, based upon reality and Lord, not based upon lies and our own deceptions. So Lord, guide us today. And Lord, may we walk in the path of the righteous and hate, Lord, even the garment that is stained by the flesh. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Well, we're in this portion of the book of Proverbs, which is contrasting the righteous and the wicked, showing many different examples of what it looks like to be righteous and what it looks like to be wicked, showing the fruit of each type of person. Now, we know that, again, it is not the fruit that saves a person. The person can only be justified by faith in Jesus Christ. But when a person is truly justified, when they are truly saved, it will result in a new life. That we've died to sin and we are to live to righteousness. And though that living to righteousness will not be perfected in this life, because we still have our weaknesses, we still have the flesh that we're trying to overcome, yet the work of the Spirit will be evident in the children of God, and it will be growing within them through their sanctification that happens progressively over the course of their life. So there will be the fruits of righteousness uh, that are going to be manifest and evident in the life of the upright, or the godly, or the righteous. And this is what the book of Proverbs is teaching. It's showing us the result of a new life, of salvation, so that we might judge ourselves truly, so that we would not be judged by the Lord. We must examine our life, examine our fruit, and make sure that we are in the faith, and that we're not under a deception or a delusion that many people are under today. 
And this is common, right? It goes all the way back to the very beginning, right? You see this in even Jesus' day with the children of Israel, that they were putting their hope in their heritage, putting their hope in the fact that they were physical offspring of Abraham, and yet they were not bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. And this is why they are rebuked by both John the Baptist and Jesus, because they say that they are children of Abraham, but their life does not reflect this reality. Well, our life needs to reflect the reality. If we are truly children of God, then that needs to be manifested in the way that we live day in and day out. And the book of Proverbs is showing us how that looks, the difference between a child of God and a child of the devil, so that we can look at our own life and see and determine, does my life, does the fruit of my life, does it reflect that I am a child of God, or does it reflect that I am a child of the devil, so that we are not under this delusion, and then we won't have uh, the expectation of the wicked. So that's what the book of Proverbs is doing. It is in many ways teaching us, practically speaking, What are the evidences of righteousness and wickedness contrasting these two in these short proverbial statements? Okay, and we're going to pick up in verse 17 today. There it says, The merciful man does himself good, but the cruel man does himself harm. Here, the merciful man, a man of mercy, who is merciful toward his fellow man, right? Merciful in his home, toward his wife, toward his children, toward his neighbor, even toward his enemies, right? That merciful man will himself do himself good, right? There will be blessing that comes upon him as a result of his mercy. Even a merciful man is merciful to his animals, right? The way that he treats everything in creation, he does so with Love with mercy, with grace in this way that is upright and befitting of the righteous. And he does himself good, both in this life and also in the life to come. It's going to go well with him in both regards. Because typically, if a person is a merciful man who is generous, who is gracious, who is kind to others, typically people are going to like him and treat him better then they're going to treat someone who's a real jerk, right? If someone's a real jerk to everyone, no one likes them. No one wants to get along with them. No one wants to see them or be around them. But someone who is merciful, his life is going to be a blessing to others. And as a result, many people will bless him. And then also, his life is going to be a, uh, a soothing and a, a, a beautiful aroma to the Lord. Because his merciful life shows that he rightly understands and has received the mercy of God. And he does himself good. But the cruel man, on the other hand, does himself harm. A cruel man, an evil man, one who is cruel, and his cruelty will be seen in the way that he treats his wife, in the way that he treats his children, in the way that he treats his neighbors, in the way that he treats his enemies, the way that he treats strangers, even the way he treats his animals. Right, He is a cruel, vicious, vile man. And ultimately, he's going to do himself harm. Sometimes, those people that are the recipients of his cruelty, they're going to turn on him. They're going to turn on him, and they're going to repay him according to his evil. They're going to give him evil for evil. And then ultimately, he's going to stand before God on the day of judgment. And his cruelty will come back upon his own head. And he will do himself eternal harm and eternal ruin because of his wickedness, because he's a wicked man. Okay, a couple of passages. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 18 and 20. Ecclesiastes 5, 18. It says, here is what I have seen to be good and fitting, to eat, to drink, and to enjoy oneself in all of one's labors in which he toils under the sun during the few years of his life which God has given him, for this is his reward. Furthermore, as for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth, he has also empowered him to eat from them, to receive his reward and rejoice in his labor. This is the gift of God, for he will not often consider the years of his life because God keeps him occupied with the gladness of heart. Here again, this being a godly and a righteous man, right? he enjoys his life 
that God has given to him because he's able to rightly use and receive the good gifts of God. The good gifts God has given to him, he uses them in the proper way, and his life is occupied with gladness of heart, with the very blessing of God. So he does himself good, both in this life and also ultimately in the life to come. He will have goodness there. 1 John chapter 3. First John chapter 3 and verse 17. Actually, we'll pick up in verse 14. First John 3:14. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. We know love by this. He laid down his life for us. We ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has the world's goods and see his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and in truth. So there, if we have the world's goods and we see our brother in need and yet... We close our heart against him, which would be cruelty. A cruel person would close his heart. A merciful man would open his heart to him. Well, this proves to us whether we have the love of God in us or not. The cruel man closes his heart to his brother. He is a murderer, and he does not have eternal life in him. The merciful man opens his heart to his brother, and it proves that the love of God is in him. God loves him, and as a result of the love of God given to him, he now loves his brother as well, and it will go well with him in this life and then in the life to come. Verse 18, the wicked earns deceptive wages, but he who sows righteousness gets a true reward. The wicked has as his wage death, right? This is the wages of sin, according to Romans chapter 6, 23. So his wage of his sin is death. However, the wicked man convinces himself that his reward is going to be pleasure and comfort. So he's deceived himself into thinking his situation is going to be good, but in reality, he's going to get a deceptive wage. He's deceiving his own self so that what is really going to come upon him, he does not see and he does not expect. Romans chapter 7, verse 23. Romans 7, 23. This speaking of the one who is captured by the adulteress. It says, Until an arrow pierces through his liver. As a bird hastens to the snare, so he does not know that it will cost him his life. He doesn't know it. And why does he not know it? Is it because this information is unavailable? Does he not have a Bible that he can read that tells him that adultery is sin and that those who commit such deeds deserve to die? Well, it's all right there, but he's deceived himself. So his wages that he gets are a deception, and this is how the wicked live. They live under the delusion that they're going to receive rewards, blessing, honor, comfort, pleasures, in this life and in the life to come, and yet ultimately what they're going to receive is death and condemnation. They've deceived themselves into these things because they don't want to give up their sin, right? That's always the ultimate factor. The reason the wicked deceive themselves is they don't want to repent of their sin. They want to live in sin and yet be assured of the blessing of God, that God is going to be with them and that God will treat them kindly and with goodness all the days of their life. But we can't have that delusion that we can live in sin and have the blessing of God. Because how can we have the blessing of God if we're living in sin? Right? It's impossible. The wages of sin is death. We should not deceive ourselves that we're going to receive a different wage than the wage that the Bible prescribes for those who live in sin. So the wicked, he has his deceptive wage. But then verse 18, he who sows righteousness gets a true reward. The one who sows righteousness, he will reap according to what he has sown. 
and he has sown righteousness, so he will reap righteousness. He will reap eternal life in the life to come. Now, again, he doesn't mean, of course, that the basis for his entrance into eternal life is his own righteousness that he has performed through his own efforts and through his own strength. However, the righteousness produced in the righteous is evidence that they have the righteousness of Christ, that they have been justified by faith, and that they will have a true reward from God. He's not living a perverse and an evil life, but rather he is living a godly life. And whatever the man sows, this is what he will reap. Those who sow righteousness will enter into the kingdom of heaven, a new heavens and new earth, and what exists in the new heavens and new earth? Where righteousness dwells. It is a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells. So if we want to go to the kingdom of righteousness, then what kind of life do we need to live now? We need to live a godly life. We need to live a righteous life. We need to sow righteousness daily in the way that we live. Now again, of course, no one is going to do this perfectly, but it must be there in some measure, in some regard. We must strive for it to live to righteousness, to say no to sin and yes to righteousness. Verse 19, he who is steadfast in righteousness will attain to life, and he who pursues evil will bring about his own death. He who is steadfast in righteousness. Steadfast. How long do we have to be steadfast in righteousness? To the very end. Yes, the one who endures to the end will be saved. We must persevere throughout the course of our life. From our conversion until our death. We must persevere. We must be steadfast in righteousness. This is what we must do. And it must not be merely some external conformity here and there, but it must proceed from an internal disposition of the heart. We must have the true desire to live godly before God, and this desire must be in us, and it must be increasing and growing from our conversion until our death. There are many people who make some profession of faith, who may for a short season of time take serious the things of God, then maybe they put off some of their former vices, the more scandalous types of sins. They get rid of those things. They come to church. They're there regularly for a couple of months, but they don't have any endurance. They don't persevere. They're not steadfast in it. And then after a little bit of time, what do they do? They go back to their old ways. They go back to their drunkenness, they go back to their immorality, they go back to doing whatever they want to do. You, you look up one day and you're like, where did they go? They used to be here, but now they're gone, right? And I can't find them anymore. They're not here anymore worshiping God. They only endured for a little bit. Will that person enter into the kingdom of God? No, because he has no perseverance, no steadfastness, no endurance in the thing of, things of God. And it is only those who are steadfast in it who will attain it, who will attain to eternal life. Because when a person has true faith, Christ will not let them fall away. His people, though they may stumble, they may have their temporary failings, but he will not let his people fall away. He will always bring them back and renew them. So steadfastness is proof that we are truly a child of God, that we have true faith, that the work of the Spirit is within us, and it is those who are steadfast who will enter into the kingdom of God. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. First Timothy 4, 7 says, but have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. On the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. For bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things, since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. So there, bodily discipline is only little profit. But godliness, being a godly person, being steadfast in righteousness, it has promise both for this life and also for the life to come. So we should be steadfast in righteousness. If we are, we will attain life. But the one who pursues evil will bring about his own death.
death. The one man pursues righteousness, and so he will enter into the kingdom of God. The other man pursues evil. And if you pursue evil, the result is death. You will die in your sins. Proverbs chapter 8, verse 36. Proverbs 8.36 says, He who sins against me injures himself. All those who hate me love death. If we hate the wisdom of God found in the person and work of Christ, and we despise it and we reject it, but instead pursue evil, then we hate Christ and we love death. And we will have death as our reward because that is the fruit, that is the wage of a life of evil pursuing. If we pursue evil, then we will die. Die in our sin and have the judgment of God. Verse 20. The perverse in heart are an abomination to the Lord, but the blameless in their walk are His delight. Those who have a perverse heart, right? And if they have a perverse heart, then they're also going to have a perverse life. Because as is the heart, so is the man. It is from the heart that flow the issues of life. If the heart is perverse and evil, the man's going to be perverse and evil. And what does God think of those who are perverse? They are an abomination to God, meaning they are detestable in the sight of God. They are loathsome to God, noxious to God. God hates and despises people who have a perverse and a wicked heart. Our heart should be true, true and right. Right in its principles, in the way that it is operating, and not with this kind of perversity in its desires and in its delights. So those who are perverse in their heart are an abomination to God, but the blameless in their walk are His delight. A blameless man in his walk. Now, blameless doesn't mean sinless. It can't mean sinless, because Job, Abraham, others are described as being blameless men, And we know that they were not perfect men. We know that they were not sinless men, but they were righteous men. They were men who sought to live a godly life, who wanted to order their steps according to the will of God, according to the word of God, and to obey God and to keep his commandments. And that walk of theirs was issuing and coming from a heart that was filled with the spirit of God. When the heart is changed, then the walk is changed. So if the heart is perverse, the walk will be perverse. If the walk is upright, then what does that show about the heart? The heart is upright as well because the heart has been changed. Well, when God changes the heart of a man and fills it with his spirit and he covers that man with the very blood of Christ, is that man an abomination to God or is that man a delight in the sight of God? He's his delight. Yes, he is his delight, just as we were talking about earlier today. Because Christ is our propitiation for our sins, God is no longer our enemy, but now he is our heavenly father. He's not our foe, now he is our friend. And just as we delight in our children, and we delight when we see our friends, so God now delights in us. Not not because of what we have done, but because of what Christ has done for us and within us. But he has changed us so that we are not what we used to be. We better not be what we used to be. We better be different. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, but now we're not dead in our trespasses and sins. We've been made alive together with Christ. We are new creatures in Christ Jesus, and this new creature that we are is the object of God's delight. He loves them, he cherishes us, and he delights in and over his people. 1 Chronicles chapter 29. 1 Chronicles 29 And verses 10 to 20. First Chronicles 29, verse 10. Said, So David blessed the Lord in the sight of all the assembly. And David said, Blessed are you, O Lord God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. Indeed, everything that is in the heavens and earth, yours is the dominion, O Lord, and you exalt yourself as head over all. Both riches and honor come from you, 
and you rule over all. And in your hand is power and might, and it lies in your hand to make great and to strengthen everyone. Now, therefore, O God, we thank you and praise your glorious name. But who am I and who are my people that we should be able to offer as generously as this? For all things come from you, and from your hand we have given you. For we are sojourners before you and tenants, as all of our fathers were. Our days on the earth are like a shadow, and there is no hope. O Lord our God, all this abundance that we have provided to build you a house for your holy name, it is from your hand, and all is yours. Since I know, O my God, that you try the heart and delight in uprightness, I, in the integrity of my heart, have willingly offered all these things. So now with joy I have seen your people, who are present here, make their offerings willingly to you. O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, our fathers, preserve this forever in the intentions of the heart of your people and direct their heart to you. And give to my son Solomon a perfect heart to keep your commandments, your testimonies, and your statutes, and to do them all and to build the temple for which I have made provision. Then David said to all the assembly, Now bless the Lord your God, and all the assembly bless the Lord, the God of their fathers, and bowed low and did homage to the Lord and to the king. So there, David, when he's praying to God, thanking God for giving them the prosperity to be able to give back to God so generously, right? Notice that. They're the ones that's given to God, but who's getting the gratefulness and the thanksgiving for them giving the gift to God? God is, because you're the one who has made it possible for us to do this for you. But he says there, you try the heart and you delight in uprightness. God tries the hearts of men and the heart that is found to be upright, God delights in that heart. But if the heart is found to be perverse, God does not delight in them, but rather they are an abomination to God. So this is what we should know and we should desire and pray as David did, that make our hearts like this all the time, right? Make our hearts like this more and more, that we would be more and more upright, more and more blameless in your sight, that we would have integrity in our inner being, and then that integrity of heart would manifest itself in integrity in our life, and that God would delight in us. Verse 21. Assuredly, the evil man will not go unpunished, and the descendants of the righteous will be delivered. There, the evil man will not go unpunished. This is a truth that we must have fixed in our minds because there are many, many people who entertain the notion and idea that the wicked will never be punished, that the evil man will go and live many years, commit many sins, and it seems like they're never going to be punished for their many sins against God. But we know, even though God's punishment may be delayed, ultimately, what is eventually going to happen to them? They will be punished. The wicked will be punished by God. So we must be convinced of this truth. Otherwise, we're going to fall in with the wicked and doing evil. We'll join a multitude in doing evil if we think that God is not going to punish it. But we must be convinced that there is a God of righteousness and assuredly the evil man will not go unpunished, but the descendants of the righteous will be delivered. The wicked will be punished, the righteous will be delivered. Even though, again, in this life, these two truths seem to be turned upside down. It looks like the righteous will not be saved and it looks like the wicked will go unpunished. And when is all of this going to be made right? When will the world that is upside down be turned right side up? On the day of Christ, right? On the day of Christ. We have to live by faith and not by sight. Not by what we see or what we experience, but by faith in what the Word of God tells us. And the Word of God assures us that the wicked will not go unpunished and that the descendants of the righteous, they will be delivered by the Lord. So we must commit ourselves and our descendants to live a righteous life, to trust in Christ, to do those things that are pleasing to God, and to forsake evil and wickedness, even if all of the wicked prosper, 
and become the rulers of the world, and we are left as living in caves, in holes, in dens in the ground, it's better to live a righteous life and to suffer and to live in misery now than to live in sin and to face the judgment of God in the life to come. Jeremiah chapter 44. Jeremiah 44. Verses 15 to 23. Jeremiah 44, 15. It says, Then all the men who were aware that their wives were burning sacrifices to other gods, along with all the women who were standing by as a large assembly, including all the people who were living in Pathros in the land of Egypt, responded to Jeremiah, saying, As for the message you have spoken to us in the name of the Lord, we are not going to listen to you, but rather we will certainly carry out every word that has proceeded from our mouths by burning sacrifices to the Queen of Heaven and pouring out drink offerings to her, just as we ourselves, our forefathers, our kings, and our princes did in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem. For then we had plenty of food, and were well off, and saw no misfortune. But since we stopped burning sacrifices to the Queen of Heaven, and pouring out drink offerings to her, we have lacked everything, and have met our end by the sword and by famine. And said the women, When we were burning sacrifices to the Queen of Heaven, and were pouring out drink offerings to her, was it without our husbands that we made for her sacrificial cakes in her image, and poured out drink offerings to her? Then Jeremiah said to all the people, to the men and women, every, even to all the people who were giving him such an answer, saying, As for the smoking sacrifices that you burned in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem, you and your forefathers, your kings and your princes, and the people of your land, did not the Lord remember them? And did not all of this come into his mind? So the Lord was no longer able to endure it because of the evil of your deeds, because of the abominations which you have committed. Thus your land has become a ruin an object of horror and a curse without an inhabitant as it is this day. Because you have burned sacrifices and have sinned against the Lord and not obeyed the voice of the Lord or walked in his law, his statutes, or his testimonies, therefore this calamity has befallen you as it has this day. So, can we escape? No. If we turn away from the Lord, we will not escape. Just as they did not, so we also will not escape. Verse 22. As a ring of gold in a swine's snout, so is a beautiful woman who lacks discretion. Here, a beautiful woman who has no discretion, meaning no wisdom, no righteousness. No, she's not a godly woman. She's a perverse woman. Well, what is she likened unto? She is like a gold ring in the snout of a swine. The beauty of the woman is the gold ring, and the woman herself is the swine. She is the pig, right? It's improper for a gold ring, something that is that valuable, to be put in the nostrils of a swine. So also, it is improper, it is not right, to judge a woman based upon her outward appearance. Merely on her outward appearance. Now here, the problem is not beauty. The problem is not that a woman is beautiful. The problem is when a woman is beautiful and she lacks discretion. Right? That is the problem. But what is the tendency of men? If there's beauty in the woman, to overlook her lack of discretion, to overlook her immoral life, to overlook her lack of character and just to be infatuated with the beautiful face, right? With the beautiful figure. This is how many men are. This is how many people are, whether men or women, in the world today. But how should we judge a woman? Should we judge her merely by her external beauty? Merely by what we see with her eyes? And the answer is no. We have to judge her based upon her character. And that must have precedence. That must have first priority. It must be on her character, her godliness, her righteousness. And if she has physical beauty without the corresponding internal beauty, then she is nothing more than a pig with a gold ring in her nose. 
That's the way that we should look at her. And there's many people like this in the world. Like nearly everyone in Hollywood, whether men or women, are pigs with a gold ring in their nose. When you see them, that's the way you should look at them, okay? Look at that pig, right? That's what they are. They are pigs by matter of virtue in terms of their life. And ultimately, what's going to happen to all of them? Even the beautiful ones are going to get ugly one day. No offense to anyone. But ultimately, all of us, right, one day, the beauty in terms of the culture and the way that people look at it is in the youth. And then they all get old one day, and that beauty goes, it goes away. And then what are they going to be left with? Nothing but no discretion, no virtue, no character, nothing to commend them to anyone. They're going to be ugly on the inside and on the out. right? Well, we want ultimately for the women to be beautiful on the inside. And then if God bestows upon a woman natural beauty as well, then that's good and fine too. There's nothing wrong with that. So long as that beauty has corresponding virtue on the inside. And what we should instill in our daughters is that our daughters would be beautiful in their character. In their character. Now again, we don't want them being disheveled. We don't want them walking around without their hair fixed, you know, without brushing their teeth in the morning, just getting out of bed, wearing clothes that are dirty and haven't bathed in two weeks and say, oh, it doesn't matter. Well, of course it matters, right? No one should dress and behave in that way. However, so there's nothing, again, wrong with tending to our physical appearance. We need to do that in what is proper and good and modest. But the problem typically is people are infatuated. They overemphasize the physical to the detriment of the spiritual, to the detriment of virtue and of internal beauty. So beauty without integrity, without righteousness, is no good. It's no good. Now, let me show you a couple of examples of beauty with integrity. Beauty with integrity. One would be Genesis 12, 11. Again, this to show that the problem isn't beauty. The problem is beauty without integrity. Just as oftentimes people get hung up on money. And again, the problem isn't money. The problem is love of money. It's the sinful pursuit of money that is the problem, not the existence of money. And the same with beauty. The problem isn't beauty, the problem is the overemphasis of beauty, and beauty not in its proper place and not cultivated on the internal. Genesis chapter 12, verse 11. This is speaking of Sarah, Sarah, Abraham's wife. He says, It came about when he came near to Egypt that he said to Sarai, his wife, See now, I know that you are a beautiful woman. So Sarah was a woman who was endowed with natural beauty. She was a beautiful woman, and he knew that this was the case in his own eyes, but also that this would be the case when other people saw her as well. Also, chapter 24, chapter 24, and verse 16. This is uh, whenever Rebekah is seen by Abraham's servant. Genesis 24, verse 15 says, Before he'd finished speaking, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Abraham's brother Nahor, came out with her jar on her shoulder. The girl was very beautiful, a virgin, and no man had relations with her. She went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. So here, Rebekah is commended as a beautiful woman. She was a very beautiful girl. But was she merely beautiful on the outside? No, because immediately after that, it says she was a virgin and had no relations with a man, meaning she was a moral person as well. She wasn't an immoral girl. She wasn't a loose girl. She was beautiful, but she wasn't using her beauty to manipulate and take advantage of men. Also, she's hardworking because she's down there getting water, and then when Abraham's servant asked her to get water for his camels, she does so as well, though he's a stranger to her. She shows hospitality. She shows what kind of a woman she was, the integrity that she had in what she did. So she was beautiful on the outside, but also beautiful on the inside. And she's commended for both. But then one last example would be in chapter 29. Chapter 29 
Verse 17 says, And Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful of form and face. So here, the, the two daughters of Laban, one, Leah, her eyes were weak, meaning that she wasn't beautiful. She didn't have natural beauty. But then Rachel was beautiful in form and in her face. Okay, so nothing wrong with beauty so long as it is accompanied with virtue. And then one other passage, Proverbs 31. Proverbs 31, verse 30. Proverbs 31, verse 30 says, Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. Charm is deceitful when a woman is charming, when she's using flattery in order to deceive men into pursuing her or having a higher estimation of her. And then beauty is vain. Beauty is vain if it does not have the fear of the Lord. It is the fear of the Lord that makes a woman praiseworthy. And this is what the Christian women should pursue. The fear of the Lord. And then whatever... God grants in terms of natural beauty, then be grateful to God and use it in a way that is proper and fitting for those who confess the name of Christ. 23, the desire of the righteous is only good, but the expectation of the wicked is wrath. The desire of the righteous is only good. Well, what does the righteous man desire? Doesn't he desire to live a godly life? Doesn't he desire to teach his children and his family the things of God? Doesn't he desire to be to part from this body and to be present with the Lord? Doesn't he desire a new heavens and new earth where righteousness dwells? Doesn't he desire to be rid of sin and to live a perfect life and not to be uh, hampered with his flesh anymore? Don't we all desire this as the outcome of our salvation? This is what the righteous man desires. He desires these kinds of things. Good things, right? Things that relate to his salvation. These are the things that he wants. But the wicked man, his expectation is going to be wrath. He doesn't desire these things. What does a wicked man desire? He desires sin. Sin, evil, wickedness. And what will be the result of that desire? He will get his part in the lake of fire. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the ungodliness of man. It says in Romans chapter 1, 18. This is the expectation of the wicked, but to have the wrath of God. Verse 24 to 26. There is one who scatters and yet increases all the more. And there is one who withholds what is justly due, yet it results only in want. The generous man will be prosperous, and he who waters will himself be watered. He who withholds grain, the people will curse him. But blessing will be on the head of him who sells. Here you have contrasted a generous man and one who is miserly, one who is stingy. Well, the generous man, the one who scatters, increases all the more. When a person is generous, even though he's giving away his goods, he's giving away his money, yet it increases all the more. God blesses him with more and more and more. But the one who withholds what is justly due, this isn't even him being generous. He's not giving this as a gift. It is what is justly due. Someone has worked for him, and he's not paying him what is his due, what is the right of the man. This is how miserly he is with his money. He doesn't even want to pay his bills. He's holding on to it so much because he wants to increase his estate. Well, what will end up happening to him? It results only in want. No matter how much he tries to hold on to it, he's going to be deprived. He's going to lose it. Right? More and more is going to be taken away from him. The generous man will be prosperous. He who waters will himself be watered. The generous man is the one who will be prosperous. Again, typically we think that if we want to be prosperous, if we want to be wealthy, then we need to hold on as tightly as we can with, to all of our money and not be liberal. And I don't mean liberal like a Democrat. 
because they're liberal with other people's money, not their own, but I mean truly liberal, right, in the proper sense. Liberal with our own money in that we are gracious and we are willing to part with it to be a blessing to others. Well, when we are like that as a generous man, we will prosper. We will be blessed. It may be that God will bless us with more wealth, and then we'll be even more generous. And it may be that God will bless us in other ways. We will prosper in many different ways. We'll have a clear conscience before God. We'll also have many friends. People will love us. And if we are on hard times, then they'll come and help us out because we were kind to them and they'll want to repay us according to what we have done. And ultimately, we'll prosper in the life to come when we have our reward because we've stored up treasures in heaven. That's the wise use of our money on this earth. And then it says, He who withholds grain, the people will curse him, but blessing will be on the head of him who sells it. Right? Whenever there is need, and you have grain, and you can sell it, and so people are able to eat, well, that's what a person should do. You have it. He's not even saying giving it away here. Just selling it for what is right and reasonable and fair so that people can have it. But whenever people hoard these things, usually to drive the prices up, so that they can then take advantage of others, then people are going to curse them because they know, I mean, this guy, he's just trying to jip all of us off, right? He's trying to cheat us all, take advantage of us. He just wants to make as much money as possible. Well, whenever we do that, people are going to curse us. A good example of this would be Joseph. Joseph stored up the grain, and he stored it up so that whenever the famine came, the storehouses could be open, and the people could come buy the grain so that they could provide for their families. And did the people curse Joseph, or did they bless him? They blessed him. They thanked God for him. They were grateful to Joseph. They said, you saved our lives. We belong to you now. They were so happy with the situation and how Joseph was used to bring about a blessing upon them. Well, this is the way that we should be. We should be generous in the way that we treat others and the way that we use our own money. Right? It's been given to us by God for us to use it in a way that brings glory to him. And one of those ways is by being generous and being kind to others and using it to be a blessing to other people, right? To be a blessing first to our family, to provide for our wife and our children, but in a blessing to the church, to the brothers in Christ, and then also to others, strangers, whoever has a need, and it's a legitimate need, right? So we're not talking about leeches. We're not talking about people who are unwilling to work. They should not eat, and we shouldn't give them anything. But if someone has a legitimate need, and we have the ability to meet that, then we should meet that need. And it will be for our good and our benefit and for the blessing of God. Ecclesiastes chapter 11. Ecclesiastes chapter 11, verses 1 to 6. There it says, Cast your bread on the surface of the waters, for you will find it after many days. Divide your portion to seven, or even to eight, for you do not know what misfortune may occur on the earth. If the clouds are full, they pour out rain upon the earth. And whether a tree falls toward the south or toward the north, wherever the tree falls, there it lies. He who watches the wind will not sow, and he who looks at the clouds will not reap. Just as you do not know the path of the wind and how bones are formed in the womb of the pregnant woman, so you do not know the activity of God who makes all things. Sow your seed in the morning, and do not be idle in the evening. For you do not know whether morning or evening sowing will succeed, or whether both of them alike will be good. Here, this passage is teaching the need to be generous. And whenever the need arises and comes to our attention, today is the day to meet the need. Don't wait. Don't say, well, you know, we're uncertain about what might happen in the future, so I better withhold from doing this because I don't want to deprive my own family and my own livelihood. Well, if you have the ability, right, if the clouds are full of rain, what happens to the clouds? The rain falls. So if your storehouse is full and you have the ability right now and the need is there in front of you, then what should you do? You should meet the need. Cast your bread upon the water 
and then that bread will return to you. Meet whatever need comes to your attention. If you have the ability to help, then you should help whenever it comes to your attention and be generous and liberal in the way that you are toward others, even if you divide it amongst seven or even eight, right? Or nine or 10, whatever comes to your attention, then however you can help, then you ought to be able and willing to help. Verse 27, he who diligently seeks good seeks favor, but he who seeks evil, evil will come upon him. The one who seeks good seeks favor, right? When we seek good, we are going to obtain favor from the Lord, blessing from the Lord. Now, again, we're not doing it merely so that we get all of these things or that we're trying to manipulate God. We're doing it because we love the Lord, because we want to do what's good and right and pleasing in his sight. But it is a blessing to know that when we seek good and when we live a righteous life, we receive the favor of God, right? We are pursuing our own benefits, our own ends, what is most beneficial for us. This is the way that God has ordained it. So that whenever we pursue righteousness, we're pursuing those things that are for our own good and for our own benefit. But the one who seeks evil, evil will come upon him. If you seek evil, you're also at the same time seeking what is most destructive and harmful to your soul. So we should seek what is good and hate what is evil. Psalm 7. Psalm 7, verses 14 to 17. Psalm 7, 14. It says, Behold, he travails with wickedness, and he conceives mischief and brings forth falsehood. He has dug a pit and hollowed it out, and has fallen into the hole which he made. His mischief will return upon his own head, and his violence will descend upon his own pate. I will give thanks to the Lord according to his righteousness. I will sing praise to the name of the Lord Most High. There, the evil of the evil will come back upon his own head. He will receive according to what he has done. But the righteous, they will receive according to what they have done. Verse 28, he who trusts in his riches will fall. But the righteous will flourish like the green leaf. Right? In 1 Timothy 6, 17, he commands the people there, to those who are rich in this present world, to not put their trust, their trust in riches. This is a sin, a temptation that is common to man. Many people put their hope in their riches. They think that if they are wealthy then everything will be good, it will be fine, both in this life and in the life to come. But if we hope that our riches will deliver us from our sin, we are going to be sorely disappointed. So if we put our trust in our riches, then we are going to fall. Who should we put our trust in? Only in the Lord. Only in God should we put our trust, and not in whatever blessing He may give to us in this life. Not in our riches, not in anything that we have in this life. And that's why those who trust in riches fall, but the righteous will flourish like a green leaf. The righteous who have trusted in Christ, who have his righteousness accounted to them, they will flourish like the green leaf. They will have life in them, and they will have life now, and it will ultimately end in life in the world to come. It says this in Psalm 52, that it is very foolish for a man to put his trust in riches because God is going to take all of that away from them. Psalm 52 says, Why do you boast in evil, O mighty man? The loving kindness of God endures all day long. Your tongue devises destruction. Like a sharp razor, O worker of deceit, you love evil more than good, falsehood more than speaking what is right. You love all words that devour, O deceitful tongue. But God will break you down forever. He will snatch you up and tear you away from your tent and uproot you from the land of the living. The righteous will see and fear and will laugh at him saying, Behold, the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and was strong in his evil desire. But as for me, I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the loving kindness of God forever and ever. 
I will give you thanks forever because you have done it, and I will wait on your name, for it is good in the presence of your godly ones. There the righteous will laugh at him because he put his trust in his riches and instead of trusting in the Lord, and he was strong in his evil desire. In contrast to the righteous man who is like a green olive tree in the house of God. Isn't that the same as what it's saying in Proverbs chapter 11? Then verse 29. He who troubles his own house will inherit wind, and the foolish will be servant to the wise-hearted. The one who troubles his own house will inherit wind. And who is the troubler of his own house? But the one who lives a godless life, a sinful life, a wicked life. He brings trouble not only upon himself, but upon his own house. He's troublesome to his wife and children because he's often sinning against them. Or maybe the wife is troublesome to the husband and children because she's nagging them and sinning against them as well. Or the wicked children are a trouble and a nuisance to everyone else as well. This is the way it is, right? Those that we should love most, whenever we're pursuing sin, we bring trouble upon even our own household. Didn't Achan do this when he, in his greed, took the gold and the mantle and took it for himself? What happened to his own household? They all died as a result of that man's covetousness. He brought trouble upon them. Well, this is what we will do as well if we live a life of sin. The foolish will be servant to the wise-hearted. The wicked will serve the righteous in that we will judge them in the life to come. They will be for our glory and for our benefit when we judge and rule over them in the life to come. So this is the way it will be. The foolish will be a servant ultimately to the wise-hearted. That can happen in this life, and it most assuredly will happen in the life to come. Verse 30, the fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and he who is wise wins souls. The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life. Whenever there is righteousness in the man, right? First, the righteousness of Christ, and then that righteousness producing fruit of righteousness within us, that fruit is a tree of life to many other people as well. They see your good deeds and they glorify God on the day of visitation. And he who is wise wins souls. When people see that, souls are going to be one, taken out of the kingdom of Satan and brought into the kingdom of Christ. It says in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 19. 1 Corinthians 9, 19 says, For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all, so that I may win more. Win more what? Win more souls, right? Win more souls to the Lord through the preaching of the gospel. That's what he is doing. And this is what we should be doing as well. We should all aspire to win souls for the Lord. And one of the means of bringing this about is the fruit of righteousness. It is a tree of life. The life and then the words. The life and the words go hand in hand. And whenever those things are there, God uses it to win souls. And this is what we should aspire to do. Verse 31. If the righteous will be rewarded in the earth, how much more the wicked and the sinner. Here, the righteous will be rewarded in the earth. Now, either this could be taken one of two ways. Either they're rewarded for their righteousness here on the earth in that God blesses them. God blesses them and there is a reward for the righteous in this earth, which is an emblem of what they will receive in the life to come, right? That they will be rewarded in the life to come. So it could be taken in that way, that there is a reward for their righteousness, though their righteousness is not perfect righteousness yet, though it is, uh, there is much weakness, infirmities, there's still the flesh, there's still sin, they have a mixture of good fruit and bad fruit, yet God, because of his kindness, rewards them because of the righteousness that he's producing in them. Or it could be taken that the sins of the righteous will be rewarded in this earth, meaning that whenever the righteous commit sins against God, God will chastise them and God will discipline them because of their 
sins. And if God does that to the righteous, then how much more will he do that to the wicked and the sinner? He will give them what they deserve. Now, either way, the principle is true in both cases. It is true that God does reward the righteous, even on the earth. But it is also true that God disciplines us whenever we commit sin against him. He disciplines his children. He chastises us as sons. And if he treats his own sons in that way, then what will he do to his enemies? What will he do to them because of their many sins that they commit against him? Will it not be much more severe for them than it is for the children? He disciplines us in love, but he disciplines them in his wrath and in his anger, ultimately to bring about their ruin and their destruction. 1 Peter chapter 4 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 to 19. It says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rest on you. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and a sinner? Therefore also those who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Right, it's time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And because of that, he brings fiery ordeals upon his children in order to test us and to purify us of all unrighteousness. And when those ordeals come, it seems as if God is treating us with great severity. Though it's coming from love, it is severe because it's a fiery ordeal. Well, if God does that with his children, then what's he going to do to his enemies? What about the godless and the sinner? If it's with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of them? Well, they will be rewarded as well. How much more the wicked and the sinner? Will they receive their just rewards for the many sins that they've committed against God. So in this, again, from start to finish, we are reminded that we cannot live a life of sin and escape the judgment of God. We cannot do that. We must have a sober mind, a right mind. We must be reconciled to God through the death of His Son. We must put our faith in Jesus Christ and then we have to live a life of obedience and do what is good, right, and pleasing in the sight of God. Live a righteous life. Pursue what is good and pleasing in the sight of God. And though we, again, cannot do that perfectly, we should do it to the extent that we can, according to the measure of faith that God has assigned, and it should be growing within us day by day by day as we advance in our salvation. And we should cry out to God for God to work within us so that we can do that which is pleasing in his sight. So this is the way that we should live, right? Putting off the flesh, turning away from evil and sin, and pursuing righteousness in the fear of the Lord. So let us then make it our aim and goal this week as we go from here and as we go out to our jobs, to our schools, wherever it is that we are with our family, and let us then do those things that are pleasing to God, seek to live a life uh, that is in conformity to his will, and pray that God would build us up, continue to build us up in our faith. Let's pray, and then we'll be dismissed. Heavenly Father, we, again, thank you for your word, and Lord, how it does so clearly and accurately, Lord, describe to us, so that there is not any doubt, Lord, as to what you expect or what you desire for your people. Lord, we know that there is a reward for the righteous, and there is a reward for the wicked. 
Lord, to the one, eternal life. Lord, to the other, eternal death and condemnation. Lord, we pray that we would pursue that which is good. Lord, that we would pursue that which is in conformity to your will. Lord, that we would diligently seek good. And so, Lord, prove that we are your children. Lord, have your favor upon us. And Lord, that we would hate evil. Lord, all of it. Lord, even the garment stained by the flesh would be detestable to us. Lord, seeing and knowing that those who are perverse in heart, Lord, they are an abomination to you. But they're righteous, Lord. They are your delight. Lord, we want to be a delight to you. We know that this can only be true of us through faith in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Only when we are made righteous in your sight through his work, Lord, can we be pleasing in your sight. Lord, we pray that that would be true of us in terms of our position before you. But also, Lord, that who we are in Christ would be manifested daily in the way that we live. Lord, that there would be the good fruits of righteousness within us. And that this fruit of righteousness would be a tree of life, Lord, to many others. And that we would be a blessing, Lord, to our family, to our children, Lord, to our friends, our neighbors, Lord, to our church, Lord, in society, wherever we go. Lord, that your blessing would be upon us, Lord, that our righteousness would shine forth, and that men might see our good deeds and glorify our Father who is in heaven. So, Lord, you who have begun a good work within us, we pray that you would bring it to completion and that you would continue to advance it within our life until the day of Christ. Lord, be with us as we go from here today. Lord, give us safety as we travel home. We pray that you continue to bless us this Lord's Day and that, Lord, you would help us this week to live faithful lives to you. Lord, that we would walk with you in uprightness. Lord, seeking to be blameless in all of our ways. Lord, give us your strength, your grace, your mercy that we so desperately need. And Lord, bring us back together again. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.